0: this is toasted sister and i'm andy murphy with Dr. Kyle White. He's the Tim Nick Chair in the Humanities and Professor of Philosophy and Community Sustainability at Michigan State University. He's also an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Can you just kind of take us to different places in Native America where uh, climate change is affecting uh, these different Native communities across the country?
1: Absolutely. You know, when I first started... Uh, learning about climate change issues that indigenous people are dealing with. One of the things that struck me the most with the way in which uh, Native people were talking about climate change versus how other people were talking about it was the emphasis on food as uh, something that is at risk Uh, for Native people um, with respect to climate change. And so I really wanted to understand uh, why that was the case. Um, What is it about food that is so important that uh, climate change uh, is threatening to a lot of Native people because it might change the way in which they eat and harvest? And one of the examples um, I've thought a lot about and... Uh, also had some experience with in the educational programs I've developed is uh, salmon and other fish for tribes in the Pacific Northwest, especially the the treaty tribes of uh, western Washington. Uh, You know, they uh, have this long-standing relationship with, with salmon going back to time immemorial, and it's a moral relationship, and it has to do with the responsibilities that people have to salmon and also salmon's responsibilities to uh, humans. And salmon is so uh, much a part of their culture. It has to do with the order of the foods that they eat when they have their feasts. It's an incredible source of nutrition. The problem is salmon habitat is very, very sensitive to changes in uh, river and stream and and ocean habitats. Uh, And so folks there are concerned that uh, warming and changes in precipitation in the Pacific Northwest, combined with just all the overdevelopment and so on that goes on with the state of Washington, uh, that they're not going to be able to harvest salmon uh, as much as they have before and that the quality might not be as good. And so they're really concerned that this is a blow uh, to their culture and to who they are as people. And so to me, you know, looking at accounts like that where people are literally concerned that the uh, relationships with non-humans, with fish that are the fundamental components of their very morality (laughs) are threatened Mm -hmm. by climate change. That's a pretty, you know, firsthand uh, and very personal experience with climate change. And so, you know, this is really what's motivated me to just learn more and to build awareness of how Native people really understand these risks with climate change as things that affect um, not only what they eat and their nutrition, but who they are as, as people.
0: Yeah. And uh, maybe it's just me and um, me seeing on social media a lot of, uh, uh, you know, water is life in different languages. You're seeing a lot of uh, water fights. Is that, do you see that like as a, as a movement today? Or is that something that, you know, is just um, has been going on, but it just now hits social media?
1: That's a great question. You know, so we've seen a lot of uh, public awareness now about the indigenous connection to water. You know, where I live in the Great Lakes region, the idea of water of life was actually also part of very visible uh, activism in the, the Great Lakes region. So for example, you know, going back to, you know, I think the 1990s, um, definitely the early 2000s, you had Josephine Mandamin, uh, Anishinaabe grandmother, uh, who was really one of the leaders of this Mother Earth Water Walk? Uh, and you had grandmothers and um, women, girls, two spirit persons, and then everybody else literally walking around um, the Great Lakes in order to bring awareness, you know, at first on the Canada side about how Canada was really breaching its responsibility uh, to have safe uh, drinking water and that some Aboriginal communities were. Uh, more affected by uh, dirty drinking water than other communities in Canada, Um, but also because Canada and then the United States were allowing industries uh, to, you know, petrochemical and other industries to just pollute the pristine lakes that were the basis for, uh, you know, Anishinaabe subsistence and ways of life, you know, going back to time immemorial. And so, you know, in the Great Lakes region, the, you know, idea is water of life has been a huge part of activism. The Great Lakes was a major point for uh, treaty rights as well. And, you know, whether it's Minnesota or Wisconsin or, or Michigan, you know, one of the key aspects of treaty rights is to be able to protect those, uh, you know, water-based habitats that are key for so many plants and animals. And so I think for folks that uh you know, more recently in the last year have become aware of water as life. You know, it's not only Lakota and Dakota people that have been fighting for this, you know, well before, uh, the, you know, the recent events. You know, they have a long history of that type of activism around water, but it's also indigenous people, uh, in other parts of the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, one thing to, to note is that, you know, you know, I'm Potawatomi, which is part of the larger uh Nishinaabe group, including Ojibwe and Odawa people and so our philosophies actually are have to do with the idea that as as people as as communities we're always in motion, we're in constant uh uh motion we never stop that change uh is what is the uh norm for us and so so much of our history and culture is about uh, migration and fluidity and constant movement. And so, water actually is a really important uh, metaphor in a sense. I mean, it's more than a metaphor because it's, it's spiritual and sacred too. But, you know, that kind of fluidity of water and how its fluidity and its constant motion are actually the basis of life um, that just goes to the core of who uh, Anishinaabe people are. And so when I was looking at some of the literature, uh, you know on Standing Rock, you know you see folks like um, like Nick Estes and others that are clarifying that actually, well, you know the way you translate that term mini wichoni, right is more about water is living. It's a living relative that's part of a larger system of morality and responsibility that are important for uh, Lakota and Dakota people. Uh, And so it's just kind of these ideas about the significance of water and how they support life, which has gotten me very active in the movement to uh, protect wild rice in the Great Lakes region, which is a traditional uh, plant for uh, Anishinaabe people and one that also faces certain uh, risks from climate change.
0: Right, right. And I want to get to wild rice in just a bit. But you brought me to a uh, point that I've been wanting to um, cover um, that that notion of it's a living being. I mean, does that go into, uh, you know, indigenous science? Like, and can you really pull apart like indigenous science and philosophy, especially when we're talking about food and plants and animals that we eat for food?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know I'm a great admirer of the work of you know Josephine Mandaman, but then also some of the indigenous scholars like uh, Deborah McGregor, uh, you know, who have really sought to uh, engage in an indigenous science that was really inspired by these women's water, indigenous women's water movements in the the Great Lakes region. You know, if you talk to somebody like uh, Deborah, who has really devoted her career as a professor now at York University in Canada to learning and and building awareness about about water knowledge, um, you find out just so many key insights. You know, for example, for Anishinaabe people, you know, each body of water actually has its own personality, um, and you have to respect that body of water for uh, you know who it is as a as a unique being that has its own mind and <laughs> and will and and, and you know, for that reason also uh, plays you know tremendous roles in supporting so many different uh, plants and animals and and insects and so when you think about well, what does it mean to be an indigenous scientist right and uh, a good. Uh, Friend Robin Kimmerer, who's a, a Potawatomi scholar, and also a great uh, admirer of uh, the work of Josephine, and, and so on. But you know, if you uh, ask her, what, you know, what she's learned about our traditions, she said that for Anishinaabe people, we actually don't really uh, believe that humans are sort of the possessors of knowledge. Rather, it's water and plants and animals and so on that have knowledge, um, and that our job is to interact with them respectfully so that we can, uh, you know, in some ways benefit from the knowledge, but fulfill our responsibilities to them and to their life. But that, you know, humans are actually pretty pathetic as as, as knowers. And we're sort of in this position of constantly having to be deferential to these other, you know, living and non-living beings and entities uh, that are the true possessors of knowledge. <laughs> All
0: right. Yeah, yeah, I listened to um gosh, I forget what it was. I think somebody taped a uh, um uh, a talk that uh, Dr. Kimmerer was giving and she, the way she described strawberries and berries was just something pretty um, Fascinating. It didn't even seem like she was talking about like science or indigenous science. She was just telling this long, very, um, you know, very cool story about strawberries and how there are relatives and how, um, you know, just the thinking behind food is just so different. She was using a strawberry as uh, an example and it was just very cool. I, I think I'm going to post it. I'll post it on the Tosa to Sister website uh, when I find <laughs> it, but. Um, <laughs> I, I just well, was I think, really taken by that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and um, I mean, she, uh, you know, Robin Kimmerer, her, you know, her work is fantastic, but you know, she's a an excellent and very talented uh, communicator, and so I would encourage you to uh, to post that and you know as much of her spoken and written work um, as you can, because I think it mm-hmm. indicates actually a key approach to indigenous science, where, you know, for those of us doing scholarship within, you know, indigenous studies or people doing indigenous scientists within uh, tribal communities, I mean, the power of it is that what, you know, motivates us is to take something like, you know, a strawberry or to take something like water. And instead of trying to, like, simplify it and say, oh, I'm going to just learn about, you know, like this one, you know, component of it, you know whether it's it's you know it's uh, you know atomic elemental structure or you know whether it's you know it's chemical composition or so, you know whatever it is. But instead of doing that, the goal of really indigenous science is to then you know kind of unpack and draw out all of the different important relationships that that you know one thing or one entity or one being has with. All sorts of other things that bring in culture, that bring in ecology, that bring in history. And so indigenous science is extremely interdisciplinary because it's actually about unpacking all the different stories that emanate from things that to say like a Western scientist would just be a very simple and discrete, you know, object that we're just going to analyze in a pretty, uh, you know, simple fashion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely. I'll put that on the Toasted Sister website, and I'll share it on Facebook, too. Um, but uh, Manomen, wild rice, um, you were talking, you should kind of maybe hit on that just a little bit about how it's um, maybe threatened by climate change. I mean, you can almost, you know, describe wild rice as sort of a political topic, almost. There's, you know, a new pipeline threatening a couple of areas um, where wild rice traditionally grows, where a couple of tribes use to harvest rice at. Um, but can you tell us how climate change is affecting wild rice today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's perhaps been a you know a, a topic. I mean the topic of wild rice, not necessarily um, uh, you know, climate change, but is one you might have you know had featured before on this podcast just because it, like you were saying, It's a heavily uh, political topic for Mm -hmm. uh, Anishinaabe people, for Dakota people, for, uh, you know, uh, others that are in wild rice areas and have those traditions with wild rice. Um, You know, the thing about um, uh, wild rice is that, you know, it's one of those core foods for Anishinaabe people. It goes way into our, you know, origin stories when uh, we were migrating from, the, the East Coast. And one of the places we stopped was the land where food grows on water. And there's a whole story about how, you know, Anishinaabe people followed kind of directions given from waterfowl about, you know, rice and that it was edible and, you know, where it was located and that rice was involved, uh, like in this entire habitat where it was very sensitive to what still is. I mean, very sensitive to water levels, to water quality um, and provides, You know, so many different services for waterfowl and fish um, and all sorts of other things that are uh, in those habitats. So, you know, climate change, for example, um, insofar as it affects uh, precipitation um, and can give you some, you know, pretty extreme rain events um, at really bad times of year. Um, those extreme rain events can take a huge toll on wild rice, both the impact of rain, but also its effect on water levels. Um, it's also the case that in certain northern areas, um, if the climate warms, that could also make those areas more attractive for uh, non-Native people to engage in recreational activities. And a number of Native folks in Minnesota will tell you about how, uh, you know, speed boating and Uh, people with recreational properties that don't want to see the rice growing, uh, that those things can affect wild rice. Uh, And just, uh, you know, a a number of other, um, you know, kind of larger um, climate change issues in the region can affect wild rice just because, you know, water levels and water quality are um, key to rice habitat. So, um, you know, it's it's an extremely uh, sensitive plant, and historically, when Native people in the Great Lakes were managing the habitat, it was actually a very resilient plant. Um, but like with a lot of first foods, what you see is that with the pressure of mining and dams and recreational activities and commercial agriculture and other factors, that all of those changes in the landscape combined actually make it so that some of the most resilient uh, plants and animals and fish from you know sturgeon to wild rice are a lot less capable of uh, surviving. And as they become less capable of surviving, it becomes harder for Anishinaabe and other people to maintain those, those moral relations, those cultural relationships with those uh, plants animals.
0: And you're going to be at the Nibby and Monoman Symposium next week, right?
1: Yep, next week. And you know, for folks that follow your podcast and are interested in in food, I mean, this event is one of uh, a series that has been going on uh, for almost uh, a decade, uh, and it's one of the, I think, uh, most significant uh, Indigenous food sovereignty events. Uh, what it has to do with is that in the treaties that the Chippewa tribe of, of Minnesota or the tribal groups that are part of the Chippewa tribe of Minnesota, in the treaty agreements they made uh, with the U.S., one of the things they protected was their capacity to harvest wild rice off reservation. Uh, and, you know, for uh, folks that are newer to wild rice, you know, it's actually a, a grass and it's It's very high in protein. And so for uh, a lot of uh, uh, Anishinaabe people, you know, it's both uh, culturally important for ceremonies and history, but it's also nutritionally important. And if you read the work of a really fantastic uh, Ojibwe scholar named uh, Brenda Child, um, she talks about how in the 20th century, when wild rice uh, became something that was a commodity um, that Anishinaabe people also survived economically off of the sale of wild rice. So that wild rice has had that significance to be able to help sustain Anishinaabe communities for, you know, years and through all sorts of very difficult um, uh, issues that they've had to face. And so what happened is that, you know, in the 20th century, um, a lot of Anishinaabe people in the, you know, Chippewa tribe of Minnesota realized that the state of Minnesota uh, the U.S., um, they weren't respecting those treaty rights, and they were doing things that were degrading rice habitat, such as some of the stuff I mentioned before, like mining and, and dams. But then also the University of Minnesota was trying to increase its profile as a leader in research on commercial wild rice, and they were interested in uh, genetically modifying uh wild rice to produce certain varieties that could be more uh, commercially viable. And, you know, as you probably know, uh, Native people were concerned that you introduce those new varieties, they're going to get into the, you know, the the older Native varieties of wild rice, and they're actually going to change the, you know, the genetic profile of the wild rice or even lead to the elimination of rice in certain lakes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're thinking about Anishinaabe culture, it's like certain families and certain, uh, you know, bands and clans, I mean, they actually identify with the particular uh, genetics of rice in very particular lakes and rivers. Um, so it's not just about a relationship to rice in general. It's a very specific relationship to very specific rice. And so the threat of genetically modified varieties and the fact that the people doing this uh uh, research. Uh, there was no way to know that they would be accountable to the concerns that Native people had uh, was really shocking. So the Chippewa Tribe of Minnesota worked with the University of Minnesota and some other partners to create this conference. And I believe uh, Winona LaDuke was uh, one of the people that was part of the the first one. Now about a decade ago, they created this conference so that all of these different folks from the mining companies to the researchers to the, the tribal harvesters to the tribal leaders would all get together and try to learn from each other about the significance of rice to them and figure out a path forward so that those treaty rights would be respected and Anishinaabe people could continue uh, their life ways and their economies uh, that featured wild rice as a key component. And so this year is probably the the fifth maybe or fourth time they've, they've, they've done it. And you can look up online a wild rice white paper that was produced by the Chippewa tribe of, of Minnesota. It's about four or five years old right now, but it's one of the best um, documents, I think, expressing the importance of protecting wild rice in Minnesota. Um, and so this year, again, uh, we've got tribal leaders. We've got president of University of Minnesota coming out. going to be hosted at White Earth, uh, and we're going to spend a couple of days uh, trying to improve relations between the university, the Chippewa Tribe of Minnesota, and other entities on wild rice. The issue, though, is that there's been some wrinkles uh, in the relationship between the university and the state and the tribes up there on wild rice. So this year, the university actually said that it's going to reinvest in commercial wild rice research um, and mm-hmm. research into rice breeding. This was something the university had uh, said previously that they had really stopped doing and weren't interested in. And so we're going to talk about that at the conference. What is the university up to? What are its intentions? And it's also the case that there were some mining policies that the state of Minnesota uh made last year having to do with how they assess the water quality of lakes and evaluate that water quality in terms of whether an area is suitable for mining or not. Mm-hmm. And what the state decided to do was pretty much against the way that tribes wanted the the state to handle this, given the connections between water quality and rice. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's going to come up as well. And we're going to uh, have to hash that out.
0: Probably the, uh, Line 3 pipeline, is that something that you've also kind of been hearing?
1: Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that that earlier, and, you know, the Line 3 pipeline, you know, there already is a pipeline up there, but, man, that thing is, you know, uh, kind of disgusting and falling apart, and mm-hmm. so they're going to uh, improve, beef it up, and, you know, create sort of a, a new adjusted route for it and an extension, I believe, too, and the construction and the operation of that pipeline is right there in some pretty major uh wild rice areas mm-hmm. and so um you know winona leduc again has been very active in addressing issues with uh line three and that's absolutely going to come up at uh this event and so you know again i mean similar to you know, the work that folks at Standing Rock did and, and water is life, you know, and you mentioned this in the name of the conference, Indian the Monoman Symposium, right? So, water and rice symposium. When you think of wild rice, you think about water. They're completely connected. They're, they're life forms, right? Since a lot of people see water as a spiritual entity with its own personality, right? They're both life forms and entities that, in their own right, are constantly intertwined with each other. Um, you know we know that actually wild rice, when it's you know in its proper uh condition actually helps to clean water um so water and wild rice actually have a reciprocal responsibility to each other, and so the idea of that work that they're doing to kind of repair and extend and reroute that pipeline is just completely offensive to uh native people. Uh, because some of those areas up there, the the you know they're off reservation, and so the tribes have limited powers to uh, protect wild rice, and you know for the families and so on that are using these lakes, and then for all the future generations, who even the ones who aren't born, <laughs> you know, who expect to be able to rice, uh, you know, in their lifetimes, uh, it's pretty upsetting that the, the the you know fossil fuel industry, the the federal government, state of Minnesota was allow something like this to uh, happen. Um, and given how much activism Native people in the region have done on wild rice, it's like, wow, you know, how is it not sunken in yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how much does it take to uh, get people to understand? And, you know, at the wild rice symposium that's coming up, the organizers of it, you know, many of whom are from the the tribes in the region, they really make sure that you know the views of of elders, the Ojibwe language are right up front in that conference. So for people that go to it, you'll see it's not like a or an academic conference. It's one in which you know Mishnave uh, Ojibwe values and views and language are are up front. They frame the event, and you know it's always hosted by a tribe. It's you know, last time it was at Malak, um, this year it's at White Earth, and you know despite all of that. That activism, that expression, that generosity by Anishinaabe people. It's like some folks just still don't get it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and that is on October 10 and 11 next week, right?
1: That's correct. Okay.
0: That was Dr. Kyle White, Timnick Chair in the Humanities and Professor of Philosophy and Community Sustainability at Michigan State University. I'm Andy Murphy, host, creator, and producer of the Toasted Sister podcast. On Friday, October 20th, I'll be at the Red Willow Indigenous Foods Experience in Taos, New Mexico. It's a three-day event from the 19th to the 21st where chefs Carlos Baca and Brian Yazzie are going to be cooking up a big fundraising dinner for the Red Willow Farm in Taos. For more information about the event, you can send an email to redwillowfarm15 at gmail.com. And if you like listening to Toasted Sister, please write a review on iTunes. That's going to help get word out about the podcast. And as always, thank you for listening.